Our teaching text this morning is from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 23, verses 35 to 43. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. This is the word of the Lord. Morning. Morning. Let me say a quick prayer, prayer first as we, as we begin. Heavenly Father, this, this picture of you on the cross and the things that, you, uh, that fall from your lips, Lord, is, uh, is familiar to many, is, uh, is, is compelling to us. Uh, but God, at the same time, it can feel like it is just uh, uh, something that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. And so uh, understanding how it directly impacts us in Brooklyn in 2019 is a challenge. So God, we've been saying it in many different ways throughout this whole service, but we just want to pray again, come Holy Spirit, come Holy Spirit and do uh, what we cannot do uh, just by our own resources alone, what, we, what our best planning and this sermon outline, God, what it could never accomplish, um, and that's just the the, the work of, of of you in our, in our lives to f- to form us, to invite us to experience grace, to to pour out our hearts. So, come, Holy Spirit, and um, and draw us to yourself. Give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name, Amen. I remember exactly where I was uh, when when I read uh, a particular scene from C.S. Lewis, Lewis's book, uh, The Great Divorce, an Irishman, by the way, born in Belfast. Um, uh, it's a scene that for one reason or another, and you may, you may have books like this or movies like this, a scene that your mind just comes back to over and over again for, for one uh, reason or another. To be honest, I was reading the book because Alice and I had just sort of started talking about to be dating, and I wanted to impress her, so that was my initial first surface-level motivation for reading it. Um, and I wanted, I remember thinking as I was reading it, I was sort of like getting drowsy, and I was like, it will be impressive to say that I read this whole book in one sitting, because it's really short. So, you know, like... Guys have a really thorough understanding of what impresses girls, especially when they're starting to date them. And so I thought, she'll be impressed that I read this all at once. We had a long tech day in the theater. It was a short book. I was like, I can do this. And so I just kept pushing to read the whole thing all at once. But eventually, the goodness of the book actually overcame both my pride and my shallow romance. And it was just good. So I won't spend too much time setting up the book. I commend it to you if you, if you want to read it. But Lewis writes this imaginary depiction of hell and heaven. Um, And in the story, 
Uh, this is not, he, he has this big disclaimer at the beginning. He's like, I'm not saying this is theologically right. This is an imagination. But um, he, people from hell in this book, The Great Divorce, are allowed to take a bus trip up to heaven and to stop, decide if they, they want to stay. They're allow, allow, allowed to linger in heaven as, as long as they can stand it, basically. Uh, and one after one in the story, uh, they leave and go back because ultimately, even though hell isn't a great place, uh, they, they, they can't really handle it in uh, in heaven. So the scene that my mind goes back to um, most, and I, again, I read this 16 years ago, but I went back to it yesterday because it was just sort of on repeat, uh, is there's this parade type thing uh, that happens, and there's this woman who's at the center of this parade, and she's being celebrated. And I want to read you just how the, the scene is set up uh, right from the book. So this is from The Great Divorce. Some kind of procession was approaching us. And the light came from the persons who composed it. First came bright spirits, not the spirits of men, who danced and scattered flowers, soundlessly falling, lightly drifting flowers. Though by the standards of the ghost world, each petal would have weighed a hundred weight, and their fall would have been like the crashing of, of boulders. Then on the left and right, at each side of the forest avenue came youthful shapes, boys upon one hand and girls upon the other. If I could remember their singing and wrote down the notes, no man who read the score would ever grow sick or cold. Between them went musicians, and after these a lady in whose honor all of this was being done. So you have this picture, uh, the, this, uh, the, the narrator and his guide to, to this heavenly uh, experience are, are there, and this procession comes by, it catches their attention, there's a woman at the center who's being celebrated, you come to find out that the, 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 the children that are on either side are those whose, uh, whose lives she, she deeply, meaningfully touched uh, and, and, and cared for and loved when she was on the earth. So you have this shining, beautiful, humble woman, she's called a great one. Uh, in heaven, Lewis actually, though, goes out of his way in, in, the, in the setup to tell you that her life on earth would have appeared very ordinary to you. He like, gives her name and the street that she lived on, uh, and he says, basically, she's a saint that no one would have particularly known about on earth. It is mentioned um, in passing, almost, that fame on earth and fame in heaven are very different things. So as she's, as she's passing by, this procession comes, uh, she gets into a conversation with a creature, and uh, at first you don't see that this, this creature was once a human being, but uh, she gets in, in a conversation with a creature who we come to find out was her husband on earth. Uh, he's visiting from hell, and he's very much deteriorated from his time there. So much so that actually the lies that he has believed throughout uh, his life have become personified as this traveling companion that has him by a chain. So this is the scene, this beautiful, shining, humble woman being celebrated in this procession and this sort of creature that is one person in two, in, 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 in personified in two ways. Um, the lies that this person believed actually being personified right beside, right beside him. So in the conversation, she begins sort of unexpectedly by asking for his forgiveness um, for any wrong that she ever did him, for any slight, for any harm, anything whatsoever, she, she asks for his forgiveness. And, and she's trying to convince him to stay in heaven. Apparently this isn't his first visit, but she's trying to get him to stay and to receive all the love that he could ever want. Things proceed in this conversation with some level of courtesy, but we, you come to see that this man has been absolutely eaten up by self-pity. 
and he, through like, you know, the, the courtesy of the conversation is present, but what he wants her to see is that he wants her to feel bad that she has forgotten him. Oh, you've got this nice life here, and oh, you've, I guess you've just gone ahead and forgotten me, and sort of like the sarcasm and, and the self-pity that define their relationship on earth comes back. I'm not going to recount the whole scene. You're like, you've already done quite a bit. Thanks very much. Um, you can read the whole book, though, in one sitting if you have someone to impress uh, or if you just really like it. But the scene is astounding in its beauty, but it's also chilling in its analysis of what keeps us trapped as human beings. The man, you realize he's being offered this opportunity for cataclysmic change that would heal him forever, that would, that even as he, it's, Lewis has this beautiful way, even as he listens just to some of the words that this woman is saying, it's like he becomes more real and, and grows a little taller. It's like sort of like you picture the Grinch, like, you know, in the story, his heart gets a little, a little bit larger in, in the story for just a moment. This is like, this is what happens. But as soon as that sort of hope begins to take hold, he goes right back to this sort of prepared speech of self-pity that you can tell has just been a shroud over his heart for most of his life. He's offered this cataclysmic change, but listen to this. He holds on to the small relish of repeating the same speeches that he said his whole life to himself and to anyone else who will listen. He cradles his self-pity to the very end. <laughs> I think when I, the, one of the reasons this story was repeating in my mind this week is I think there's a way to see this scene <laughs> between the two thieves on the cross as Jesus is being crucified in a similar way. We don't know how close of friends these two thieves are. I kind of, like, don't you sort of kind of imagine them as having been arrested together and the throne in the clink and they're talking about what's going to happen. They don't get off and uh, then they're, they're being executed together. I imagine them as, 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 as pals, but we don't know that. That's, I'm not like, don't, don't email me. I don't know um, what their life was before, before the cross. But uh, it does seem like they know something about one another because they, they speak back and forth even briefly to one another about what, what, what's going on. Yet this moment on the cross occurs with Jesus and they take opposite tra- tra- trajectories. Careful now. Um, they take opposite trajectories. Tra- <laughs> My grandmother couldn't say aluminum. I apparently can't say trajectories. Um, She said, anyway, I won't get into how she said it, but you don't need to know that. That's not relevant for the talk. Just relax, okay? So the first one, the first thief sticks to his speech that he's become familiar with. He sticks to his way of life. He he, he mocks. He looks out for himself. He chooses self-pity. He attempts manipulation even at the very end. In In his last moments, like sarcasm and venom is spewing out of him even in his last moments. The other thief finally lets his guard down. Of course, that that trajectory would have been open to him as well, but he chooses a different way. He's somehow moved by grace. Something grips his attention, his imagination moves his heart. He sees Jesus being crucified. He sees him being mocked, and yet he sees him offering forgiveness. The first word from the cross that we had last week was Jesus forgiving those who are actually crucifying him. And it, it, it takes hold in this man's, in this man's heart. He, so he confesses himself. He stops you know, hiding in whatever way he stops. He gives up his last little bits of protection and confesses his own heart. He confesses his need. He asks for mercy. And then he receives mercy, and he receives something that's actually beyond what we can imagine he would have hoped for. Whatever he, you know, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Whatever he thought, however far away that was, the the, the promise Jesus speaks back to him 
is beyond what, 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 he, what he possibly could have imagined. He said to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. The scene in Lewis's great divorce is where heaven and hell meet, uh, and then they part ways. And it's the same thing with these two thieves. We're using these, these, these weeks of Lent to look at the, the last things Jesus said on the cross, how he embodied those things in his life, and how he offers them to all, all of us who, who believe, who trust in him. So we're going we're gonna to have a look at this, this saying where he grants salvation to this thief hanging beside him. And, and also, we're going to try to unpack just a little bit as, as, as we close the future hope that Jesus offers for all who trust and follow him. We, we live in a world of such immediacy. We are marketed to with, 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 with such thoroughness to pay primary attention to our now ambitions, to pay primary into, uh, attention to the expression of, of our most immediate desires, that the, 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 the pursuit of happiness that our country is founded on and the way we express that now is to get the means available to yourself to do whatever, your, whatever desires your heart happens to present to itself and get it now because you don't know what tomorrow, like so many commercials, right? So many messages, you don't know what tomorrow is and of course not, so so. So don't worry about it and get what you can now. And yet the, the scriptures keep calling our attention to the reality that, that this 70 years or 80 years or 90 years or 50 years or however much time we have is a vapor compared to the life that, that, that we actually are, have a share in that is going to go on forever. So truly, we don't think about this very much. What is the future hope for those who trust and follow Jesus? The scene is so short, but so much takes place. I, I would like for us to see Really quickly, the inter- interplay between the grace that's pouring out of Jesus' life and the cry of faith that comes from this man's heart and how they result in his redemption. Uh, but also, just, yeah, like I said, hanging on to this promise. What, what, is it, what, what does this promise of paradise mean for us today? Uh, because I think there's been an appropriate swing. Like our church is mission statement is to join God in the renewal of all things. We're, we're praying that his kingdom would come in Brooklyn as it is in heaven because that's the prayer Jesus taught his disciples. And the generation before us, for all the, the good that they might have done, one of the ways they, they taught young followers of Jesus to share their faith was to try to manipulate a conversation to get to a point where you ask someone, if you died today, do you know that you know that you know you would, where you would go when you die? And so, like, an entire generation, like, and, and, and good-heartedly, right, if, if, if our lives go on for 70 or 80 or 90 years and then they go on for eternity, eternity is a significant consideration. But if the primary motivation for why you begin faith in God is fear about ending up in the good place or the bad place, that's going to deeply affect the way you live. And Jesus never does that. He never presents the message of the gospel as like, hey, let's say you got hit by a tractor today, where would you go? He's like, come and follow me. His message is come and follow me. And actually, through union with him, a type and quality of life begins that carries you past the moment of your death. But he never is like, get your ticket stamped now for heaven. That's the sum total of the gospel. Actually, pray this prayer, try to mean it, and then you're in. That's kind of... The gospel, some of you were presented as kids, and I want to tell you that never comes off of Jesus' lips. So we need to do a little rethinking about what our practical hope is actually in. Today you will be with me in paradise. What is that? 
So first, the grace and faith. I'm going to just give you the scene again so the details are really fresh in your mind. It's really short. Um, You can read it in one sitting. Luke 23. The people stood watching and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and, and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him. We're going to talk about this in in the coming weeks, which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus is dying. He is being mocked. He is suffering. It's interesting to me that the specific mockery happens to be recorded three times. It's basically the same thing. Um, If you're who you say you are, save yourself. And then the thief, the, the third time adds, and save us. I've flown past that a million times, but something stuck in my, my head today, uh, uh, I heard a friend say recently, a pastor from, from, from Portland, um, that sin makes you the same. That sin sort of eventually, like however fantastically you start, like a life of selfishness, a life of self-pursuit, a life of asking others to orbit around you, a life of trying basically functionally to be your own God. Sin makes you the same. Eventually it drains the originality out of your life and you end up in the same sort of basic categories that you see everyone else end up in. And... Uh, we, 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 we're sort of marketed to, like, like not, not, I, I feel like if you're in advertising, I love you so much. I feel like we hit, we hit that quite, quite a bit, but um, we think that we're being original, we're following our desires, but then we kind of default back to the same old selfishness, the same old pride, the same old meanness, the same old lusts that have defined generations before us. And I notice that, that these mockers lack originality. <laughs> like, can you imagine if your very last words was just an insult you just heard two other people say? It's kind of like, come on, man, this is it. This is your last chance. And you're talking to the Messiah. Like, if you're going to go out with a bang, like, get him. You know, get him somehow. And yet he's just like, same thing. It's just like, oh, it's grumpy. It's unoriginal. It's sad. It, it, sin makes you the same. On the other hand, the, the second thief does something Something quite unexpected. He sees this grace that's pouring off of Jesus. And this is, a, this is like in this small, slowed down picture of someone's redemption. What we see is a grace always comes first. Right? The grace of Jesus is, is pouring out of his life literally in this moment where he's winning this man and our redemption. So grace, grace always comes first and he, and he sees it. And, that, and seeing it is part of part of the grace, but the second thief through the fog of pain and through the fog of, of, of fear and regret and exposure and this mockery and approaching death, he sees Jesus for who he really is. And this is where redemption begins for, for us, right? It's present in the grace that's being presented, but when we begin to access it, it starts by seeing, oh, I start to see Jesus for who, for who he really is. He sees that an innocent man is dying and yet he's giving mercy. And this moment, all the threads of his life begin to be pulled together. 
And this is the type of thing that the grace of God does for us. It helps you to see, oh, I'd never thought of this this way. Oh, I'd never seen I, this voice that I've been living with, this lie that I've been repeating up myself. I, I never knew, knew what, what kind of hold it had on me. This opportunity to be loved, to be known, to be seen, to be embraced. It, it, the grace of God begins to open up a vision of opportunity for us like we've never had before. So he sees the grace of Jesus, and then he has a cry of faith. And this is sort of the interplay that makes for redemption. Grace is demonstrated, and there's a cry of faith response. You know what? Every single week, we have like basically three opportunities to respond to what we've heard in, in, in the sermon. We come forward, and we receive this meal. We have space to pray. We have these rugs out, space for you to come and pray, to pray with other people. And then we have we have, we're singing worship because every time that grace is present, there's an opportunity for, for faith to cry out in response. And we want to be a people who are always in that interplay. Grace is presented and we are responding. So it's not like, yeah, you, you come forward for prayer like once or twice in your life when things are really crazy. No, every single week, we're, we're becoming a people who are responding to the grace of God with a cry of faith. And, and here's the basic elements, right? He sees reality. Don't you see that this is what's going on here? Don't you see the real picture? That there's more going on here than just our story? He confesses his heart. Don't you see what we've done that our lives have basically been leading to this? He asks for mercy. He turns to Jesus and says, will you remember me? Now that's whatever else out of desperation of a dying man is theologically insightful because he sees past Jesus' death. Like, remember me, he's gonna be dead in like 30 minutes. Somehow he has reason to hope that this is not the final scene for Jesus. And so he cries out, hey, remember me when you become king, basically. And then he receives mercy. Jesus gives him what he asks for and it's better than he would have thought. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus says, on my integrity... Truly, I tell you, not in some distant future, but today, you will be with me in paradise. You will be with me. Hold on to those words. These are the elements of salvation that Jesus brings. We see them dramatically embodied in this scene and this man. And basically this refrain that's repeated in the New Testament over and over again. What is eternal life? Knowing God. We, we live in a relational world. We have a relational God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit in his very being. God wasn't lonely and created the world because he needed friends. He created the world as an overflow of a relationship of love. And his entire work of redemption is to bring human beings into that dance of relationship, into that place of union. Eternal life is knowing God. So Jesus is the fullness of that God life in a human being. Eternal life, eternal life, whatever else it is, whatever paradise means, don't miss this. It's union with Jesus. You will be with me in paradise. Eternal life is something that begins through union of Jesus. As soon as we come into that relationship, it is a new quality of life that begins in us by the power of the Holy Spirit, but it does carry us past our death. So, Our shared hope. 
Over and over again, the, 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 the life after we die, when it's described in, in the New Testament, basically like a couple of realities keep coming up. The first is you'll be with God. And the second is that sin and death and, and, the, and the grave and pain and agony will be absent. So God will be there is the primary reality of whatever life with him after death is like. And there's an absence of sin and, 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 and death. And so that represents quite a different reality from what, from what we're used to. Very different also from the normal pictures that people use to describe heaven. John Ortberg has, has a new book out right now that uh, I know this will be the second book I've commended to you in this sermon, but Eternity is Now in Session. Um, and it's, it's uh, really compelling. I want to read you one section of it that sort of gets at uh, how we often entertain the idea of heaven in our, in our mind. He calls it movie heaven. Uh, movie heaven is pretty much a pleasure factory that anybody would enjoy as long as they were allowed in. But the life after death that Jesus describes is very different from movie heaven. Here's the main truth to know about heaven. Heaven will be life with God. In fact, in heaven, it will be impossible to avoid God. It's not like heaven is an immense place you have to track God down somewhere, like finding the Wizard of Oz. Heaven does not contain God. God contains heaven. So becoming the kind of person who wants heaven, uninterrupted life with God, is a problem. Because I often want freedom to do things I don't want God to see. Real heaven means life where my every thought, deed, and word lies ceaselessly open to God for eternity. Our issue with heaven is not so much about getting in. It's about becoming the kind of person for whom heaven would be an appropriate and welcome setting. If I don't want the unceasing presence of God in my life now, how could I truly want an eternity in the ceaseless presence of God where the possibility of any sinful action or thought, no matter how desirable, is forever cut off? Whatever else is going on, that description makes me think some of these people who take the bus to heaven in, in Lewis's story are going to leave. Actually, it makes me think, I wonder if the thief knows what he's getting into. Is he going to be all right? Because we don't, we, don't, we don't know. Like, I, I, I grew up in a church where they're putting time and dates on like, uh, verses in Revelation for like, when these things are going to occur and how these political events are stirring up to make sure that this is going to happen. We are not given a ton of specifics about like, the, the new heavens and the new earth. And, 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 as much as they're mentioned, it seems like God is intentionally vague on, on what it's like. Like it stretches the capacity and parameters of our imagination. But there does seem to be a formative process that begins on earth that follows us into that life. That The eternal life doesn't start when you die. It starts when you come into union with Jesus and it carries you past the moment of your death. N.T. Wright has done as, 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 as much helpful work on this as any modern theologian, basically to disabuse us of the false notion that many of us were given as kids, that basically our, our hope for, for, uh, as followers of Jesus is a heaven that's a far off place of clouds and harps and choir practices and like robes and everyone's super friendly. That's not the picture that, he, that we're given in, in heaven. He, he has shown us over and over again that the, the, the scriptures speak of the future plan of God is for heaven to be reunited with earth and sin and death to be put away with so there's full redemption and renewal of all that God has made. Let your, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. So, I, I just said there's not a ton of specifics, but I will, like as an attempt to stumble forward with you 
I'll give you some of what is mentioned. Right? Here, here, here are, are, if you go through the scriptures, there's five or so wide headings under which our future promise of life with God is, is sort of defined. And I'm going to give you those. These are the promises of our future hope. The first is, is Jesus mentions it right on the cross, is we will be with Christ. The primary thing is that we're united in relationship. We are immersed into the life of the Trinity. We come to know the Father Yahweh by the redemptive work of Jesus the Son. That, that tears the veil. We're going to get to that later in this series. And, and opens the opportunity. The presence of God, once, once cut off and reserved away from us, is now filling our very lives. And we're becoming the temple. So we come to know Yahweh by the redemptive work of Jesus. We're filled with his Holy Spirit. And so we're in relationship. So whatever paradise is, it's being in union with Jesus. We will be with Jesus. And secondly, is we will be like Jesus. There's a formative process of character in which you don't lose the unique person that you are. The DNA that, 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 uh, that, that you carry, the story that you've, that you've lived in, the sphere of relationships and how those relationships form and shape you, but that you become like Jesus, you actually become more and more like the truest version of yourself. And that that, that, that will even be more magnified once sin is gone. And you will shine forth with who you were meant to always be. You'll be with Jesus, you'll be like Jesus. We'll have... We shall have glory. This is what I'm, I'm going to spend the least amount of time on. C.S. Lewis has a fantastic essay called The Weight of Glory about how he's like, I don't know what it is, but I don't want to be an eternal light bulb if that's what glory is. And I don't want to just have like sort of like superficial fame. What does it mean? And basically he, he, he gets down to this like the incredible delight that comes from a parent to a child where they love you and are proud of you and embrace you, that that's something to do with the shared glory that we're going to have in union with Jesus in, in the new heavens and the new earth and this paradise, whatever it is. You want to get sort of a little bit of the heart, out of, heart of it, read Jesus' prayer in John 17. He's like, give them the glory, yes, that we had before the foundations of the world. Like, let them have a share in the wildness that was going on before we made everything. Give them all, give them a glimpse of it. Let them, ha- let them be drawn in. It is something more magnificent than, that, magnificent than words can even get at. But we're gonna have a share of glory. Second, there's a party. There's a banquet, there's a celebration, there's goodness, there seems to be food. Jesus, post-resurrection, makes fish on the beach. I always imagine he whips up a tartar sauce as well. Um, so we know that there's eating. I mean, this is a cause for rejoicing. Amen. <laughs> oh, I want to say stuff, but I'm going to keep going. Disciplining myself right now, and you should appreciate it. So um, there's a banquet, there's food, there's celebration. Uh, one, one, one sort of regular depiction of what, um, of what heaven is going to be like is the greatest wedding reception you've ever been to, where you're celebrating love, you're celebrating union, there's fabulous food, like uh, Uncle Terry's like finally like, showing people that he can dance after a couple, like, um, and that's what it's going to be like. But then also there will be recovered dominion or authority, right? And there's some weird stuff out there, you know, like there's religions that are like, we get a planet, and then we're like making it our own. I don't know. I don't know exactly what it means, but there's some, there's some reference to that we will have a role in judging angels, in ruling cities, anyway, whole other series. We're gonna leave that alone for now. But there is a recovered sense, the authority 
that God gave our first ancestors in the garden, which actually is the literal translation of the word that Jesus uses on the cross paradise. It's a return to this garden picture from, from Genesis. You will be with me in this perfect garden is basically what he says. And there's a recovered authority. I want you to have dominion. I want you to rule with me. I want you to have a share in, 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 in what you say goes in this place. And we know that the catastrophic effects of that in the garden, but there will, there will be wonderful, eternal, beautiful consequences of that in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's just the five headings under which our future promise is, is depicted in the scriptures. And I don't know what that does. I don't know if that creates longing in you or revulsion. Let's be honest about what, which one it is. I'll say this. I used to think the bed, bedside confession as you're dying was the way to go. Like I was like, if I could just plan it and have some idea when I was going to go down, it would be fantastic to just sin my whole life with impunity and then get to the end and be like, can I get some forgiveness? Can I get in? Like the thief on the cross, doesn't he have it made? He sends his whole life and then right at the end, he gets in. Let's just say a little bit about that. Um, First of all, amazingly, that type of grace is in the wheelhouse of Yahweh. It is, it is the type of thing God does. You can come right to the very moment. So, so no matter what category you imagine yourself in, no matter what sort of ticker tape of insecure thoughts might play in your mind over and over again, no matter what you imagine that you're defined by or mistakes that you've done or how far you fit, feel like you are from God, in the, in the wheelhouse of the grace of God is a type of rescuing grace that takes you all the way there in one moment. You're never, if you are breathing, you are never too far away from the grace of God. And if you turn, he will run to you like he runs to the prodigal son, embrace you, put a robe on, put a ringer, and throw a party. Put a ringer? Put a ring on your finger. That's ringer. (laughs) Trajectory. Come on. So I want to say, Last second grace is in God's wheelhouse, but we make a mistake, I make a mistake, if I make this the aim of my life, because actually the good stuff of life now and life there is union with Jesus. That's actually what makes abundant life abundant. And some of you know this just from earth, like you've gotten the job you wanted or the things that you wanted or, or all types of different things that you thought were, were, were paramount in your desire and you got them and then just a little while later you were bored with them because you are a relational being and there's nothing that you can set the weight of the desire of your soul upon that will not crack underneath that weight except God himself. So the goodness of heaven is union with Jesus. And I imagine at some point the thief is going to get this in his journey in this paradise place. But we can have it right now. You can have it right now. You can have a a real reflection, a real hint, a real taste of the goodness of that place now. Life with Jesus is the substance of what eternal life is. It is a share in the deep, the deep union of the Trinity. We hear, today you will be with me in paradise, and we start trying to picture paradise, but we just passed its description. Its description is, you will be with me. Union, you are made for relationship. That's what the kingdom is. The horror of the scene in the great divorce is that this man holds so tightly to to the lie of selfishness and self-pity that it actually consumes him. 
he becomes the lie. And like the first thief, right, he's frothing in, this, in, his, in, his, in his final and unoriginal rant of self. Frothing in a final and unoriginal rant of self, right? When a whole new world is open and available to him. He's clinging to the lie. After the scene passes in the book in The Great Divorce, the, the witnesses, the narrator sort of says, I wish it wasn't like this. Like he's so kind of heartbroken at, at this man disappearing into this lie of selfishness and self-pity that had consumed him. And his, his guy turns to him and he says this, Son, son, it must be one way or the other. Either the day must come when joy prevails and all the makers of misery are no longer able to infect it, or else forever and ever the makers of misery can destroy in others the happiness they reject for themselves. I know it is a grand sound to say, it has a grand sound to say, you'll accept no salvation which leaves even one creature in the dark outside. That sounds very merciful, but look what lurks behind it. The demand of the loveless and the self-imprisoned that they should be allowed to blackmail the universe, that till they consent to be happy on their own terms, no one else shall taste joy, that theirs should be the final power, that hell should be able to veto heaven. When I read that, it just chills me. When I see it in the two thieves, right, this presentation of a choice, the first being a joy, (laughs) that comes crashing in unexpectedly but changes everything, that it begins with seeing Jesus for who he is and it starts with the risk of real confession of your heart but it, it ends with a promise greater than you could possibly have imagined, union with, with the love you've always been longing for and a promise that it can't be taken away. That or the misery of insisting on our sin, our selfishness, our self-pity, all the unoriginal and consuming bitterness that comes from that. It's been done. Wherever you are, if you begin to see the glimpse of the grace of Jesus demonstrated on the cross, if it's for the first time or for the millionth time, you just confess your heart to him. You ask for mercy. You ask for his, his, his movement. You say, will you come and break into my self-pity? Will you come break into my selfishness? Will you come break into my... To my to, 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 all the ways I've closed myself off to love, will you come crashing into that? And his response is a mercy beyond description, a promise that doesn't end. Fullness and complete joy. So, I believe the Holy Spirit's gonna be leading us to make different types of responses today. I'll just give you a couple of them quickly. I think some of you will need to make a confession of faith today. You see that, that what Jesus is doing on the cross, that there's none of us that are beyond the reach of his mercy. And so you can make wherever you are for the first time or the millionth time a confession of faith today that you're seeing Jesus for who he really is. You can confess your heart and receive mercy. The second is some of us need to rethink what we have our hope in. Right, some of us still have sort of a middle school version of heaven where it's like we're just gonna play ultimate frisbee and ride roller coasters all day. Basically, like whatever your version is of that. Like just feed up by the fire and the greatest books you've ever, like whatever your thing is. Like we've basically like taken our hope of heaven and planted it in a consumeristic American vision of life when ultimately what we're made for is union with him. So we practice tasting that abundant life by walking in our union with him. 
And then some of us just need to simply be flooded with joy today. Flooded with joy that you're going to be with him forever in paradise. And that you don't have to wait until you die to start living in it. So, you guys all right? All right, let me pray for you then. Heavenly Father, again, I ask that your Holy Spirit would, would take this picture of hope from your word and would just apply it as specifically as possible to each one of our minds and to each one of our hearts in the way that we couldn't do on our own. Show us how we are meant to respond to your grace, God. Show us the confessions of faith that that we need to make. Show us um, the recovery of hope that we need to have. God, I, I know that in the throes of everyday life, it is so easy to give up any kind of substantial hope. I pray that, like a rekindling of a fire in our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would rekindle hope in many here this morning. Show us, God, how each of us is meant to respond. In Jesus' name, amen.